The following talk was given at the Sati Center for Buddhist Studies in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at sati.org. Thank you so very much, and thanks to uh, everyone at the Sati Center for organizing this, and thanks to all of you for coming along. Uh, I am speaking to you today from uh, Harris Park, which is near Parramatta in Western Sydney. And this is the uh, traditional land, traditional owners of this land are the Baramadigal people of the Darug Nation. Uh, and as is uh, conventional in Australia, we always pay uh, respects to the traditional owners of the land, past, present and emerging, uh, and acknowledge their unceded custodianship uh, of this land. So we are going to start a series of four, uh, four uh, sessions on the Parayana Wagga of the Sutta Nipata. Uh, I know some of you were uh, hoping to start last week and I had to cancel because of ill health. So sorry uh, to everybody who was inconvenienced because of that. Uh, but uh, uh, anyway, we are hoping to we will we'll be putting an extra session on at the end, so we'll have, a, have still have the four sessions. Uh, good to see so many uh, friends uh, joining us: um, Esther, Mike, Susan, and many new friends as well: uh, Ram, Sharosha, Julie, Star. So good to see you all. And I'm really looking forward to spending a little bit of time uh, talking about the suttas. Now, we know that we're living in all of these uh, very difficult times. In Australia, we have, of course, the COVID pandemic like everywhere, and we have also floods have been afflicting our country for many months now. So that's like a kind of a two pale horseman stage of the apocalypse that we're at now. And I'm sure that different uh, places around the world are enjoying uh, different sort of phases of the end times. But meanwhile, we still have the Dhamma. And one thing that the Dhamma does promise us is that there is a way to the beyond, that there is an escape, a way out of all of this. Uh, I know that most of you will have some experience uh, and knowledge with the suttas, but some of you may not also. So I'm just going to begin by giving a little bit of a brief background and introduction to the suttas and what we're doing here. The uh, teacher that we know as the Buddha was one of the many uh, wandering uh, renunciate teachers in India uh, about two and a half thousand years ago. And he lived and taught in northern India, India today, the region of the Ganges Valley. He taught for 45 years and accumulated a large community. And when he passed away, his community got together and organised uh, the recitation of his teachings to preserve uh, his message. Uh, and they passed those scriptures down and they've come down to us in various forms today. Uh, and the scripture we'll be reading from today is from the Pali Canon, which was passed down in Sri Lanka. And um, the, uh, the Buddhist scriptures are conventionally divided into three portions. We call the Tupitika or three baskets, the suttas, vinaya and abhidhamma, suttas being the main discourses that the Buddha taught, the vinaya being the monastic code and the abhidhamma being the uh, scholastic treaties. So this comes from the suttas or from the discourses, 
within the discourses, we have five Nikayas or five sections, and this is from the last of those, known as the Kudika Nikaya or minor section, and it's within the Kudika Nikaya, it's from a book called the Sutta Nipata, and within the Sutta Nipata, it's from a chapter called the Parayana Wagga. So this is where it sits. Now, I'm saying a lot of words in Pali. If you don't know Pali, don't worry about it. I will try to avoid using too much Pali uh, but uh, for this session. But if there is anything that I say that you don't understand, please tell me. Because if you don't tell me, I don't know. Okay? Uh, so please help me out because I, I, just in case you're wondering, I can't read all of your minds, Okay. And Zoom can't read your minds yet either. Yeah, may give us a few years and we'll be able to do that, but not quite. So uh, if I'm talking and there are things that I talk about that you don't understand or doesn't make sense, then please do just pop your questions into the chat and I will keep my eye on that and uh, hopefully uh, be able to answer any questions. Now, in the uh, chat, I did put the uh, link for the first chapter of the Sutta that will be, or first section of the Sutta of, of the Parayana Vagga, which we'll be reading uh, first. All right. Now, uh, a little bit of an introduction, uh, general introduction to this text before I start reading. Now, the Sutta is a compilation of uh, five chapters. Uh, which is unique to the Theravada school of Buddhism. Many of the parts of the Suttanipata are found in other schools of Buddhism, but the collection as a whole is only found in the Theravada canon. And the same is true for the Parayanavaga. We do have various parallels and so on, uh, but it's mostly preserved in the Theravada tradition, Pali tradition. Uh, and, then, and, and certainly that's the version I'll be reading from. Uh, however, the Parayanavagga is re- referred to a number of times throughout the um, uh, uh, Buddhist traditions, both inside the Pali and also in the Chinese and Sanskrit traditions. So even within the other suttas, uh, it refers to verses, quotes from verses in the Parayanavagga, and it even calls it the Parayanavagga. So that shows that it was quite an early collection that already existed uh, when the other suttas were being compiled. Uh, having said which, the Parayanavagga as we have it today is a composite, it's not all just from one uh, session, but it consists of uh, the, the heart of the, the uh, heart of it is the 16 questions, the Solus Upanha. Uh, and they to those 16 questions have been added an introduction and an ending. And so they create a narrative which sort of wrap up and give context for those 16 questions and give those questions meaning. And I'm going to be talking quite a bit uh, today about the narrative context of the Parayanavaga, about how meaning is created through the way that the narrative is shaped. Let's uh, I, when when I'm when I'm teaching suttas and I'm uh, talking about suttas, I try and, I try to get to the actual sutta as quickly as possible, uh, so we can read through the sutta and then discuss it rather than giving too much uh, information up front. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to just uh, share my screen and then we can read through the first portion of the Parayana Vaga. Okay, and let me see. It's going to work. 
<clears throat> Ajahn, may I ask a question? Yes, please. Um, I come from a little bit of a Sanskrit background. Anytime that Parayana is set up, it comes with a composition and possibly a meter associated with that as well. Yes. Is that the case here? There is a way of chanting in addition to the essence of the meeting in this particular sutras? Uh, well, uh, the yes, there's, there's certainly uh, metrical suttas, and the the verses in Pali, uh, the, the the meters in Pali are essentially similar or closely related to the same metrical styles that you find in Sanskrit. Um, there's no fixed way of reciting, so the different traditions will recite it all with their different styles. Uh, of course, the meter in Pali is very strongly determined by the length of the syllables. But uh, apart from that, the, the, the chanting style will vary. Appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So let. So this is the my translation from the uh, Watugata, the uh, introductory verses. From the fair city of the Kosalans to the southern region came a Brahman expert in hymns aspiring to nothingness. In the domain of Asaka, close by Alaka, he lived on the bank of the Godhavari River, getting by on gleanings and fruit. He was supported by a prosperous village nearby. With the revenue earned from there, he performed a great sacrifice. When he completed the great sacrifice, he returned to his hermitage once more. Upon his return, another Brahman arrived. Footsore and thirsty, with grotty teeth and dusty head, he approached the other and asked for 500 coins. When Bhavari saw him, he invited him to sit down and asked of his happiness and well-being and said the following, Whatever I had available to give, I have already distributed. Believe me, Brahman, I don't have 500 coins. If, good sir, you do not give me what I ask, then on the seventh day, let your head explode in seven. After performing a ritual, that charlatan uttered his dreadful curse. When he heard these words, Bavari became distressed. Not eating, he grew emaciated, stricken by the dart of sorrow. And in such a state of mind, he could not enjoy absorption. Seeing him anxious and distraught, a goddess wishing to help approached Barbary and said the following. That charlatan understands nothing about the head. He only wants money. When it comes to heads or head splitting, he has no knowledge at all. Madam, surely you must know. Please answer my question. Let me hear what you say about heads and head splitting. I too do not know that. I have no knowledge in that matter. When it comes to heads or head splitting, it is the victors who have vision. Then in all this vast territory, who exactly does know about heads and head splitting? Please tell me, goddess. From the city of Kapilavatu, the world leader has gone forth. He is a skyon of King Okaka, a Sakyan, and a beacon. For he, Brahman, is the awakened one. He has gone beyond all things. He has attained to all knowledge and power. He is the seer into all things. He has attained the end of all deeds. He is freed with the ending of attachments. That Buddha, the blessed one in the world, the seer, teaches Dhamma. Go to him and ask. He will answer you. When he heard the word Buddha, 
Bhavari was elated. His sorrow faded and he was filled to brimming with joy. Uplifted, elated and inspired, Bhavari questioned that goddess. But in what village or town or in what land is the protector of the world where we may go and pay respects to the awakened one, best of men? Near Savati, the home of the Koslans, is the victor abounding in wisdom, vast in intelligence. That Sakyan is indefatigable, free of defilements, a bull among men. He understands head-splitting. Therefore, he addressed his pupils, Brahmins who had mastered the hymns. Come, students, I shall speak. Listen to what I say. Today has arisen in the world one whose appearance in the world is hard to find again. He is renowned as the awakened one. Quickly go to Savati to see the best of men. Brahman, how exactly are we to know the Buddha when we see him? We don't know. Please tell us so we can recognize him. The marks of a great man have been handed down in our hymns. 32 have been described complete and in order. One upon whose body is found these marks of a great man has two possible destinies. There is no third. If he stays at home, Having conquered this land without rod or sword, he shall govern by principle. But if he goes forth from the lay life to homelessness, he becomes an awakened one, a perfected one, with veil drawn back, supreme. Ask him about my birth, clan and marks, my hymns and my students, and further about heads and head splitting. But do so only in your mind. If... He is the Buddha of unobstructed vision. He will answer with his voice the questions in your mind. Sixteen Brahman pupils heard what Bhavari said. Ajita, Tisametteya, Purnaka and Metagu, Dhotaka and Upasiva, Nanda and then Hemaka, both Todeya and Kappa, and Jatukarni, the astute. Badravuda and Udaya and the Brahman Posala, Mogaraja, the intelligent, and Pingya, the great hermit. Each of them had their own following. They were renowned the whole world over. Those wise ones, meditators who love absorption, were redolent with the potential of their past deeds. Having bowed to Marvari and circled him to his right, they set out for the north with their dreadlocks and hides. First to Patikana of Alaka, and then on to the city of Mahisati, to Ujjeni and Gonadha and Vedisa and Vanasa, then to Kosambi and Saketa and the supreme city of Savati. On they went to Setavya and Kapilavatu and the homestead of Kusinara. To Pava they went and Bhoganagara and on to Vesali and the Magadan city. Finally, they reached the Pasanaka shrine, fair and delightful. Like a thirsty person to cool water, like a merchant to great profit, like a heat-struck person to shade, they quickly climbed the mountain. At that time, the Buddha at the fore of the mendicant Sangha was teaching the mendicants the Dhamma, like a lion roaring in the jungle. Ajita saw the Buddha like the sun shining with a hundred rays, like the moon on the 15th day when it has come into its fullness. Then he saw his body complete in all features, thrilled, he stood to one side and asked this question in his mind. Speak about the Brahman's birth of, of his clan and his own marks. What hymns is he proficient in and how many he teaches? His age is 120, said the Buddha. By clan he is a Bhavari. There are three marks on his body 
He is a master of the three Vedas, the teachings on the marks, the testaments, the vocabularies, and the rituals. He teaches 500 and has reached proficiency in his own teaching. O supreme person, cutter of craving, please reveal in detail Barbary's marks. Let us doubt no longer. He can cover his face with his tongue. There is a tuft of air between his eyebrows. His private parts are concealed in a foreskin. Know them as this, young man. Hearing the answers without having heard any questions, all the people inspired with joined hands wondered, who is it that asked a question with their mind? Was it a god or Brahma or Indra, Sujah's husband? To whom does the Buddha reply? Bhavari asks about heads and head splitting. May the Buddha please answer. And so, O hermit, dispel our dark. No ignorance as the head and knowledge as the head splitter. When joined with faith, mindfulness and immersion and enthusiasm and energy. At that, the Brahmin student, full of inspiration, arranged his antelope skin cloak over one shoulder and fell with his feet to the Buddha's, with, fell with his head to the Buddha's feet. Good sir, the Brahman Bhavari, together with his pupils, elated and happy, bows to your feet, O, o seer. May the Brahman Bhavari be happy together with his pupils, and may you too be happy. May you live long, young man. To Bhavari and you all, I grant the opportunity to clear up all doubt. Please ask whatever you want. Young Kinchi Manasichata. Granted the opportunity by the Buddha, they sat down with joined palms. Ajita asked the realized one the first question right there. All right, so this is the first, the opening uh, uh, introduction for the 16 questions. Now, those of you who have read the Paranavaga already will know that the tone and the manner of this introductory portion is quite different to what we find in the 16 questions. And it is universally agreed by scholars that, the, that this was a, a much later addition. Uh, and how much later? Well, um, we are, I'll, I'll do a little bit of I'll, I'll give, do a little bit of uh, his, his text historical analysis here, just so we've got a context. But I don't want to spend too much time on this because I think there are more important things to say about it. But uh, just very briefly, uh, if you look at the journey that was undertaken there, and I'm just I should have got this beforehand. Um, but I'll see if I can uh, find a map for you. Uh, but the journey that was undertaken uh, starts from places that were uh, a long way from uh, where the Buddha normally lived. And uh, so uh, this is the first sign that it's later. Buddhism spread in the years following the uh, following his, his the Buddha's passing away, and the uh, we know some of the details about the way that that has uh, spread. Specifically, uh, we know uh, details from uh, the Ashokan inscriptions and from various other texts that uh, date from the time of King Ashoka about. 150 or 200 years after the Buddha. Uh, and those texts 
include some of the same names that we find mentioned here. So this is one uh, very good indication as to the lateness of this particular session. Now I'm just going to do another screen share uh, and we're going to have a look at a map. We got the map? Yes. Yes, we got the map? We good? Yep, thank you. Um, so this is around here is where we started out. This is, this is um, this, these, many of these are approximate, but this is about where Barbary's hermitage is, okay? So we can see this is quite far south, up here, Benares, and this is Rajagaha and, and uh, Savati. So this is where the Buddha normally was, yeah? He went a bit further, went a bit further east, a bit further west, but normally he was around this area. Uh, and so they travelled past Mahisati, Ujjaini, Vedisa, Manasa, Kosambi, and so on. They took a detour, so they'd obviously heard that the Buddha was going to be at Savati. That's where he spent most of his time. So they sort of took a detour up to Savati, and then they're like, oh, no, he's actually down here, came back down. This is almost this part of the journey, the last part is almost the reverse of the Buddha's journey in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta where he travelled north from Rajagaha, so down through these places and ended up in Rajagaha uh, in the hills there where the Buddha was teaching. Now, this region down here is called the Dakinapata, uh, and, in fact, Dakinapata means the southern road or the southern trade route. And so this was because you can see here this is quite hilly. It's the area often known as the Deccan today. So this is quite hilly and rugged, so the trade route went down to the southwest where it joined up with the sea trading routes here where there would be trade uh, from about 100 years after the Buddha. There was then trade with the Greeks and then the Romans. And then the southern route then continues down to the east where it reaches Andhra Pradesh and then from there to Sri Lanka. Uh, and, in fact, this is li likely the route that uh, Mahinda and later Sangamita took uh, on their way to Sri Lanka. So we can see that this, this is considerably outside of the region uh, normally that the Buddha went into, and all of these place names that we encounter in that first part of that journey are not found anywhere else in the suttas. So this is one of the reasons for uh, understanding that this is a later text, but there are many other reasons for this as well. Uh, it includes various doctrinal ideas that we don't find in other early Buddhist texts, one of those most obvious ones being the idea of wasana. Okay, so in, uh, in that, those verses we heard that Bhavari was still redolent with the potential of past deeds. This is a concept of vasana, which became very, was introduced in the very latest books in the Pali Canon, Melinda Panha, Neti Pakarana, um, and became a, a very, a very uh, common idea in later forms of Buddhism, but we don't find it in the suttas at all. So the idea here is that when we're born in this life, that we are, our, our, our character, our spiritual potential uh, is informed by the karma that we've done in our past lives, all right? Now, of course, in the suttas, uh, it talks about karma and rebirth and so on all the time, and it says that we experience the different results of it. So it's not as if this is a, a radically new idea, 
But this terminology and the way that it's talked about, we don't really find that in the early suttas. Uh, and there are a number of other terms like this. Uh, quite a lot of the idioms we find here are Sanskritic in form. Uh, some of the narrative devices, echo, uh, uh, for echo uh, things that we find in Sanskrit epic poetry and so on. So we can't really date this introductory portion earlier than about the second century BC, which puts it about two or three hundred years after the Buddha. And it makes it one of the latest portions of the Pali Canon. All right. So... Now, that's, if, you, if you're interested in the uh, historical analysis of, of all I've just said, there's a great article by the uh, Sri Lankan scholar uh, uh, Jaya Wikrama. He did what is called a, a critical study of the Sutta Nipata. It was published in the early 70s, but you can still find it on the Internet Archive uh, if you want to go have a deep dive into a lot of the, the uh, details that I've been talking about there. So we know this is a late text. Okay, that's fine. Right. And but what does that tell us? Like what what kind of thing are we dealing here? Why is this text there and why is it like the way that it is? These are to me much more interesting questions, right? So we don't when we do textual study and especially text historical study, I found I found sometimes that there's a tendency for people to say, well, this is a late text, therefore I can ignore it. Okay. <laughs> Sure, you can ignore it if you want to, but that means you're not learning anything from it. And the different kinds and different strata of texts each tell us something slightly different uh, about the time and the place and about the, the way that the people in those places were responding to the Dhamma. I'm going to return to this idea in just a minute. But first, I'm just going to put this introductory text in the context of this chapter as a whole. I'm going to trace, if you like, a narrative arc. So we have our starting point. Think about how this starting point went. We begin with Bhavari. We're introduced to him. Yeah. He seems like a nice guy, right? He's just given away all of his money, right? He's trying to do what he can to help people. He's sincere. He's earnest. And then this bad guy comes along, this unscrupulous Brahman who wants to rip him off for all of this money and then threatens him with a curse. So we have a dramatic tension, okay? Ah, right? Any good narrative, you have to start with some kind of tension, right? There's a threat. His head is going to explode in seven pieces. And obviously in the context of the narrative, he takes that very seriously. Now, it seems kind of a bit goofy to us, okay? We might think, well, you know, someone's going to come along and lay a curse on you. Sure, sure, mate, yeah, whatever. And we're not going to take it very seriously. But for most people over most time, these things are very serious and they weren't messing around. Uh, and when people make these kinds of curses, then it was felt to be very kind of powerful. Now, he can't solve this problem. I'm going, to, I'm going to go into more of these details a bit later on. So he can't solve the problem. He can't deal with that himself. He gets help. Ah, oh, this devatar comes to him. Nice, right? It's nice if you can get your own personal God to come to help you out with your problems, okay? Nice. And then his students also help him. 
So this is one of the things it's giving us here is about the importance of community, the importance of spiritual friendship, right? All right. They go to see the Buddha. Then they ask all of the questions. Now, the questions, when we get to those in the next weeks, they have a much more serious tone, much more, you know, we don't find that kind of mind-reading stuff and the, the marks and all of those kinds of things. It's much more straight, dumber uh, questions about meditation and, and living a best life and so on. It's elevating the discourse, Yeah. And then when we come to the final chapters again, we find that the, the discourse is even elevated still. It becomes almost quite transcendent by the end. And I, I think that this is a deliberate choice by the composer of the chapter. And I know that some commentators have, have tend to be a bit dismissive of the introductory or it's late and it's a bit goofy with the curses and things like that. But to my mind, that's the point. The purpose of the narrative is to meet people where they are, to talk to people in terms that they would understand with a popular narrative, and then gradually to lift them up to a place of transcendence. And I think that this whole narrative was very, very carefully designed specifically to do that. It reminds me, in fact, of the, um, the uh, monument at Borobudur, and I don't know if anybody here has had the chance to visit Borobudur on Java. Has anyone been to Borobudur? If you can, you should go. It's really amazing, really stunning. And what they do in Borobudur is, is something like this, that you have these different layers and you're supposed to walk around the layers, okay? And each layer has uh, panels in the side that tell stories, and in the bottom layer, it's all like Jataka stories, like folk tales and morality fables and things like that. And then as you go up, it tells the life of the Buddha. And then as you go up, it starts expressing more abstract and profound philosophical ideas. So actually your, your journey of walking around is taking you on that whole spiritual journey, which is encapsulated in the artwork there. And I think this story is doing something, the Paranawaga is doing something similar. It's starting out with a popular level narrative and then gradually it's building you up to a more transcendent finish. Which again begs the question, why? Why is it doing this? Why set something so far away? Clearly, you know, clearly the, that, that whole introduction, you know, we're not going to take that literally from a historical point of view, but why is that there? Then it seems to me that this is a conversion narrative. Right? This was a narrative that was designed precisely because it was about introducing Buddhism to those faraway lands. And so typically what happens when Buddhism spread to new countries, especially after the time of Ashoka, that you would develop a mythology that would make some connection of your place with the Dhamma, which would backdate your connection with the place to the time of the Buddha. So either, usually either the Buddha himself visited that place or maybe one of the Buddha's disciples visited it or something like that. So in some way, you're making that connection. And so I think this is an early example of a conversion narrative, yeah, which I think makes the whole spectrum of it actually really gives it another layer uh, of, of interest. Now, 
when we think of it as a conversion narrative, right, um, then it starts to make sense because the curses and these kinds of things, you see, you see in much of the world still today, like, like holy men, like monks, right, or bra- wandering Brahmins and things like that, they're not necessarily, I mean, they're a bit scary, right? Because you can, you know, you can do stuff, mysterious stuff, and you've got to keep on the right side of people. Otherwise, they might, you never quite know what's going to happen to you, you know. And people will always kind of project things onto you. So if you arrive in some place as a bhikkhu, people will always project things onto you depending on what they are conditioned by. So when, for example, I arrived in New York and I'm traveling on the train on New York and people see me, they'd go, ah, Avatar. That's what they think of, Avatar. A comic, anime, something, anyway, whatever. And they're like, so they're like, oh, I'm going to be doing Kung Fu or something like that. I'm like, yeah, no, sorry, I don't, <laughs> I don't know Kung Fu. So it's a similar kind of thing. So this, is, this, this genre of literature would reach people where they are at. And it's part, so part of that message is about showing them, actually, you know, you don't have to be scared uh, because, you know, the Buddhist, uh, Buddhist monastics are not going to be like that. We're not going to be making curses and all of these kinds of things. So this is just giving us an initial perspective to try to understand that kind of narrative arc of the Paranavaga as a whole and why it begins such a profound series of questions with an apparently uh, slightly, you know, popular or, or a bit weird uh, introduction. Um, so I'm just going to check the uh, chat, see if we've got any questions so far. Oh, thanks. Um, Julian has given us a link to Jai Wickrama's uh, uh, article. So if you, um, if you, yeah, if, like I said, it's a, it's a pretty deep dive and he goes into a lot more than just the Parayanavaga, but it's really excellent because he gives a lot of the um, resources, he compares with a lot of the Sanskritic texts. For example, one of the things that I just learned this morning that he talked about is in the, I think it's the Baudhayana Griha Sutra, one of the Sanskrit um, sutras or um, Sanskrit uh, law books. Uh, it says that if a Brahmin visits the Dakinapata, then they have to do purification when they return. So the Dakinapata was so far away that it was considered not part of the Aryavata or the, the, the sacred lands. So that's, uh, this is, again, this idea that we're uh, heading into unknown territory. All right. Let me come back to the Sutta itself and go in a little bit more detail in the introduction uh, text. Okay. And please do uh, pop any questions into the chat as I go, and I will get to them uh, as I go. And I'll just make a few comments along the way. So from the fair city of the Kosalans, which of course is uh, Savati, to the southern region, Dakinapatang. Actually, I probably should change that translation. Dakinapatang mm, literally means the southern road. It's a trade route. Came a Brahmin expert in hymns, uh, the Mantaparagu, the hymns, of course, being the Vedas, uh, aspiring to nothingness. 
Uh, now, the word for nothingness here is, I think, uh, playing double duty. Normally, in this kind of context, uh, it would mean um, simply owning nothing, possessing nothing, right? So just, you know, leaving, leaving everything behind and just going and living a simple life. But we also find that a number of the questions uh, revolve around the meditation attainment of the dimension of nothingness, the akinchanya yatana. And uh, so perhaps what it means, you could also read that as saying that he went there to practice meditation so that he could realize the dimension of nothingness. Uh, and that was, of course, the meditation attainment, which was taught by Alara Kalama, one of the Buddha's former teachers. Uh, so we know that he lived getting by on gleanings and fruit. Yeah. So he's living a very humble life. So he's living a life. See, this is in the, throughout the suttas, the Buddha and the Buddhist texts depict a like a true Brahman as being living a life of simplicity and renunciation, which is not unlike the lifestyle of the Buddhist mendicants. Uh, typically, they argued, or the suttas argued, that modern Brahmins had fallen away from that state and that they were falling into corruption. But here it's painting an idealised picture of somebody who's living uh, in accordance with the ancient, the true Brahmanical ideals. Um, so he performed a sacrifice. We're not told what the sacrifice was. Of course, there are many different forms of sacrifice, um, hopefully he wasn't doing animal sacrifice. I don't know, but uh, anyway, I hope, hope not. Anyway, so another Brahmin arrives, travelling Brahmin. This one obviously not, <laughs> not very reputable. Pankadanto Rajasiro, grotty teeth and dusty hair, asked for 500 coins. That's a lot, I think. Seems like a lot. So not getting what he wants, he then uh, threatened him uh, with splitting his head in seven pieces. This threat is it's kind of it's a standard uh, threat um, and uh, did actually happen in one of the Upanishads where somebody got this threat and it actually happened and their head exploded in seven pieces. So no idle threat is all I'm saying. Um now, in a way, like what this is setting up is because this is a kind of classic, it's a cl classic kind of Buddhist uh, way of revaluing and reinterpreting uh, ideas from a Brahmanical tradition, right? So, you know, in this context, clearly it means like a physical curse that's going to explode your head into seven pieces. But when it gets to the Buddha, of course, he reinterprets it and says, well, this is uh, ignorance. Yeah? And so we're going to ignorance is the head because the beginning of dependent origination. So we're going to get rid of ignorance instead. So this is a typical way that the Buddha would reinterpret these things. So Bhavari became very distressed and emaciated because of this. And this, you know, this is not an unrealistic description. Uh, and there are many cases that have been uh, recorded where people who get these kinds of curses or black magic and so on, and it has very causes very real psychological uh, distress. Um, happened to my mother actually. She's living in Malaysia, living in Ipoh, and uh, 
Long story short, but there was uh, one of the people around the place started doing black magic uh, to to scare the maid. Like mum only found this stuff out much later. So mum mum in my mum's house, she was staying there. They had a maid who was looking after the place. She was a and she she was just a you know uneducated woman. And so someone from the local area started doing all this, like what they call a BOMO, started doing all this black magic, leaving these things around the place and icons and these kinds of things, specifically to try and scare the maid. Why was he doing that? So that he could coerce her into giving her the key to the place and then steal stuff from the house, which they then did. So this is where it all came out in the court case. Anyway, so a goddess... Wishing to help, approached Bhavari and said the following. So um, we don't know who this particular goddess was. Uh, Bhavari was in this extreme of distress at that time. Maybe uh, it's not unheard of that people might have some kind of breakdown, some kind of hallucination. Right? Maybe he was hallucinating this goddess. Hmm, possible. Maybe she was a local deity, right? So when Barbary has moved in there, you know, he's, he's a representative of what, what would have been a foreign religion at that time. And so this is in a way showing perhaps that the local deities were on their side. Uh, so she tries to console him. But she also admits that she doesn't know about heads and head splitting. Again, a standard part in the kind of the Buddhist r- rhetoric when it comes to relating to uh, 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 other kinds of religions, especially theistic religions and so on. Uh, the Buddha wasn't uh, interested in trying to deny the existence of gods and so on from other realms, but he just said that, well, they don't really know uh, what's up? They don't really know the answers to the problems that matter. So again, this is a standard Buddhist rhetorical device. It is the victors who have vision. Interesting choice of terminology. The victor is more commonly used as an epithet for Nigantanataputta, who was the founder or the leader of the Jain community. Jains, the word Jain meaning the followers of the victor. Uh, but Jina is also used more generally and is used for the Buddha as well. So uh, this deity knows about the Buddha, the world leader, Loka Nayaka, uh, a scion of King Okaka. Interesting that she introduces this uh, idea of lineage here. King Okaka is the legendary founder of the solar dynasty of kings in ancient India. He, his Sanskrit name is the Ikshvaku, and the Ikshvaku dynasty, uh, uh, there's sort of two major royal dynasties, the lineage of the sun and the lineage of the moon. And the Buddha is said, the Buddha's family is said to be descended from King Okaka and the lineage of the sun. Uh, then the, the Deva offers these verses uh, of homage or praise of the Buddha, and so there's a, it's bringing in this devotional aspect. And as we'll see, this also is something which is revisited at the end. And I think this is something that's um, 
you know, I mean, clearly this is this is being deliberately introduced, right? This is a conversion narrative. And so the Buddha is being hyped up, the Buddha is being praised, is being exalted, is being lifted up. Uh, and I think it's really important to, to acknowledge the emotional uh, content and the emotional perspective of these uh, texts. These are not dry scriptures and they're not just about some intellectual answer to a particular problem or something. It's about an act of commitment. His sorrow faded and he was filled to brimming with joy. Uh, so the Deva uh, recommends he go to Savati. Then he addresses his pupils. We haven't heard about the pupils before, the Sisa. They're Brahmins who, who have mastered the hymns. Uh, that means they've memorized the uh, Vedas. And he, in, he uh, encourages his students to go to see them because he is now uh, too old. Did he actually say that? Anyway. Um, how do we know him? And then they introduce the topic of the marks of the great man, the Mahapurisa Lakana. Now, the 32 marks of the great man is a bit of a controversial topic. I won't go into it too much detail, but it's mentioned a number of times through the suttas, and there's a list of 32 physical features which, are, according to the suttas, were passed down in Brahmanical scriptures as a sign of somebody who would be enlightened or would follow one of two destinies, as it says here. Either they become a universal monarch or they become an enlightened Buddha. One of the curious things about this uh, doctrine of the marks is that we don't really find it in uh, Brahmanical scriptures that, that have passed down to us. So perhaps it's been lost uh, or perhaps it was just something that was invented by the Buddhist. We're not really sure. Um, in any case, so they, uh, they're using this as a sign uh, to test whether the Buddha really is the Buddha uh, according to their system. And we find a similar thing in, for example, the Brahmayu Sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya. But a unique uh, 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 detail here is this idea of just asking questions in the mind. Uh, I don't think we find that anywhere else in the suttas, right, especially especially not used as a deliberate strategy like this, right? Um, yeah, quite an interesting kind of little detail. I know. I mean, I know as a monk that uh, a lot of people sometimes assume that you can read people's minds, and um, so they'll be sitting there, and then you might say something completely innocuous, and then they'll be like, "Oh, he must have been reading my minds," because he, you know, I'll, I'll say something like, "Oh, you know, if you get attached to things, it'll cause suffering," and they'll say, "Oh, really? He must be reading my mind because I got attached to something and it caused me suffering." And uh, so it's definitely this kind of propensity to, to imagine these the kinds of things are happening. So it's an interesting kind of rhetorical device that's being used here. Uh, uh, now, next, we have the list of the 16 Brahmins. Uh, most of them we only find here or in the uh, later books. Uh, we don't find them in the rest of the suttas, but we will hear from each of those uh, later on. Uh, here it sort of tries to hype up each of the Brahmin students saying that they've all got their own followings, maybe, 
wise ones, meditators who love absorption, jahai jhana rata dhira. So in the questions, the 16 questions, we don't really get a sense that they were necessarily famous teachers in that way. But that second part, yes, that's definitely true. They, they, many of them ask questions about meditation. Okay, so then they go up on their journey. Would have taken a while, many weeks, perhaps a few months. Uh, this is an interesting, uh, this is a little detail here that it would be easy to overlook, but that in fact um, is also quite significant, like the merchant to great profit. Yeah. So Dakinapata on a trade route. And so this is kind of acknowledging the significance of those uh, trade routes. Uh, Buddhism, in fact, spread along trade routes all across Asia. Uh, then they asked about Bhavari, the Buddha in his mind, the Buddha answers, 120 years old. Uh, everybody's wondering how can we be asking these things. So I won't go too much into all of these details. This, this particular passage is uh, an interesting one. The particular qualities that are mentioned here, um, for first of all, main emphasis is on knowledge or wisdom, and then faith, mindfulness, immersion or samadhi, and enthusiasm and energy. So these are more or less the same as the five faculties, right? Uh, and the uh, five faculties, uh, faith, energy, mindfulness, samadhi, and wisdom. And the five faculties, of course, taught commonly in Buddhism, but also interestingly that they were taught by Alara Kalama uh, as well as by Uddhakarama Putta. So they're taught by the Buddha's early Brahmin teachers. So this sort of adds to the idea that perhaps uh, Bhavari was from a lineage or tradition that was related to that of Alara Kalama, whether he's one of his students or at least from a school that had an affinity. <clears throat> uh, then uh, uh, Ajita bows to the Buddha and the Buddha gives this very nice little blessing to him. Sukito Bhavari Hoti Sahasisehi Brahmana Tancha Sukito Hoti Tirangivahi Manava. Again, it seems it's kind of innocuous, but it's a little bit different from what we normally find in the suttas. Uh, and in the suttas, the Buddha will, uh, you know, he will engage in a kind of polite conversation, you know, how are you, have your journey been well, how are you travelling and so on. But that particular idiom of saying, may you be happy, sukihoto, which is, you know, we're so used to seeing that these days, it's such a common part of Buddhism. But this might be the actual one of the first cases where we actually see this in the texts. Uh, then the Buddha grants the opportunity to ask whatever you want, yang kinchi manasichata. Uh, and then this leads on to Bhavari asking his first question. Okay. So this is the introductory portion to the Parayana Wagga. Like I said, the um, uh, Parayana, the, this is quite different from the rest of it, has quite different tone, and it's really just setting up 
that uh, the context that we're going to be reading later. Now, even though, you know, ob- obviously this is an earlier portion and obviously, you know, when I'm not going to, I don't think any scholar would really take it too literally as a historical document of what actually happened. I mean, it seems likely, you know, given that the 16 questions were early, then it seems likely that, you know, there must have been some background story to it. Right? So something happened which probably wasn't that much unlike what we've just heard, right? These things are, u- are normally are not just made up out of nothing. They're usually told and retold as uh, legends, which then get elaborated into a final form. And to me, like I said, this whole narrative, if you, if, as we go on, try to bear this narrative context in mind and is one of those places where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Okay. Uh, Kato Kato is asking about whether I'm going to send a list or outline of the suttas covered each week. I I, I won't be, but what we're going to be going through the Parayana Wagga. So it'll basically be the next few suttas. So 16 questions, so you can do the math. So I'll try to get through about uh, half a dozen uh, of those each week. It's probably a bit ambitious. I might not do any of them. But if you uh, want to do preliminary reading, I would say do at least the next half a dozen uh, sets of questions. They're mostly pretty short. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it doesn't take too long. Okay, Julian asked a question. Uh, how's it going, Julian? Uh, Julian was curious about the name Bhavari. Does it have a meaning? Uh, I could only find the Sanskrit Bhavari, Bhavari, an enemy of worldly existence, says the internet. Related, no. So this is Bhavari with a B, not Bhavari with a B-H, okay, different letters. So Bhavari is, yes, the uh, enemy of world existence. Bhavari doesn't seem like it's related. I mean, words can change in all kinds of funny ways, but unlikely. Uh, I'm not exactly an expert on this. I know that one proposal was that Bhavari was related to Babylon and that he was a Babylonian which also could be connected with his location because you remember where he was down in the uh, southwest near the ocean, uh, which was where the trade routes with Babylon were established. Uh, So it's a fairly tenuous argument, probably not not viable, but apart from that, I'm not really sure uh, if we have any meaning for the name Bavari as such. Oh, one thing I should mention, actually, that I was going to say earlier uh, about the name Parayanavagga. So Parayanavagga, uh, the name of the chapter as a whole, uh, 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 is also a very nice meaning. Right? The meaning is the way to the beyond. So literally, uh, para is the other, yeah? The other, self and other, yeah, ordinary word. And para with a long a is a what they call a tadita or secondary derivation, which means the place that is other in this case, the, and usually used of the far shore. Yeah? So it's the far shore is the place that is other, and the ayana is the going. You may be familiar from uh, the ayana from the Satipatthana Sutta. And the Satipatthana Sutta has the ekayana, right, which is the, the, that which is going to one. Uh, going to oneness. And so here we have the parayana, same construction, but here the para going to the far shore. Uh, Very beautiful and very evocative uh, name. 
Okay, so Korokot uh, mentions that these 16 questions are in the Thai monk education level, Nak Tam Ek. Okay, so in the first uh, uh, Dhamma education level. So many monks will be familiar with them. Oh, that's, that's interesting. In, um, I remember when, it, when I was in Thailand, I read a translation, an English translation of the 16 questions by, uh, I think, one of the Thai, I can't remember, one of the Thai... Uh, Anyway, senior patriarchs or someone, one of the famous Thai monks. And it's a bit unusual because it's not, you don't find many English translations uh, of suttas uh, in Thailand. So, uh, but that's nice to know that those questions are um, part of a regular thing. Korokot, have you done the Naktam Ek? I might get an answer from him. He has. Okay. How was it? Sorry, getting a bit off topic here. It's a, a bit difficult. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Well, anyway, I'm glad to see you keeping it up. Uh, good. So we're heading towards an hour already. Seems like no time. Does anyone have any final questions before we break up for today? I'll just mention... Please. Simple little thing. I just enjoyed hearing yeah, you rec- yeah. hearing you recite uh, place names and the personal names um, um, with what seemed like a correct accent. It sort of took me back to that, that time more than almost anything else uh, has done. That's all. Ah, oh, thank you. Thank you, Bill. That's really nice. I, 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 I do try to get the pronunciation correct. So thank you for noticing. Sure. <laughs> if, if anybody is interested in Pali and wants to, to learn it and so on, then Pali pronunciation is pretty easy to get right. And we know we, it's pretty kind of well-defined and relatively straightforward. But, uh, yeah, a little bit of effort and then you can do it. Uh, okay, uh, Rob, I think we should maybe wrap up about now. What do you reckon? <laughs>